right, we're going to spend some time in Romans 3. So if you've got a Bible, please keep it open. Uh, Like I said, we've been working through a sermon series on salvation. We've looked at election, regeneration, so God's choosing of people to save and his bringing dead people to life last week. Tonight we're looking at justification. And these big words aren't simply about us becoming smarter, but actually about us knowing more how God has saved us and marvelling and revelling in that. So tonight we're in Romans chapter 3. Um, I wonder if you've ever been in a conversation where the other person changes the subject without actually telling you that they've changed the subject. Sometimes this happens in my household where I, I get quite confused. You think you're talking about soccer training for the kids and suddenly you are wondering why soccer training involves baking. And so you try and connect the dots and you think, are we now having cake at half time instead of oranges? Or is this a soccer fundraiser that we're baking things for? Or has the coach outlawed baked goods because the under-7s, Camden Falcons' performance needs to just increase by 4 to 5% and all the cake that the kids are eating slowing them down? I sometimes think that for a person who doesn't understand or know of anything to do with Christianity would sometimes think that the connection between Jesus' death and eternal life is a bit like that. Put yourself in the shoes of someone who's never been exposed to the Christian faith. Some Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago dies, rises from the dead, and so now we can have eternal life. If you're like Stu and have grown up in church, you go, yeah, obviously. But if you haven't, it would be fair to say, how does the death of a Jewish bloke 2,000 years ago somehow mean I can live forever? There's a few dots to be connected. What does it have to do with me and eternal life? Um, For such a long time, I could have told you that Jesus died for me. But I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't really understand how Jesus' death did anything in my life. And so tonight we're going to look at this idea called justification. And at the heart of justification is this, this question. How can a holy, good, just God declare a sinner like me to be righteous, to be innocent? How can a holy God declare a sinner to be righteous and innocent? And this this question is at the heart of the entire storyline of the Bible. And so if you're you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you're checking out Christian faith, um, we're so glad you're here. And I really want to encourage you tonight to think through this question. How could I stand before a holy, perfect God and not be condemned? How could I stand before a holy, perfect God and be declared innocent? If you're a Christian, there's a danger here tonight because you you will start going, well, I've heard all this before. I can switch off. I can start thinking about other things like what's happening after church tonight or what's happening tomorrow. You can start thinking, Ah, he's going to talk about Jesus again, gosh. I hoped we'd talk about something more interesting. I remember being a young guy at a Katoomba convention with a preacher named John Chapman, and I remember him saying, if you ever get sick of hearing the gospel, repent. And at the time, I was one of those young people who wanted to hear more exciting things than Jesus' death and resurrection, felt pretty slapped around by it. But as you hear what God has done for you in Christ, if you're a Christian, I actually want you to think through, am I living it out? 
So many of us reckon we understand the gospel fully, but as we look at our lives, well, the truth of our lives might actually indicate we don't know it as well as we thought we do. So here's the plan. This, this concept justification, we're going to look at it in the Old Testament and understand that it doesn't pop out of nowhere. If you try and read Paul's argument to the Roman church in Romans chapter 3 without any background of the Old Testament, what he's saying will not make much sense. So we need to understand what's going on in terms of the whole Bible. And then we're going to work our way through Romans 3. We're going to look at the big problem that all of us have. We're going to look at the solution that God offers and then think about life as a justified person, as someone who God declares righteous. So let's start with the Old Testament. If you've never heard the storyline of the Bible before, God creates humanity and humans are in the Garden of Eden and they rebel against God. They do what the Bible calls sin. It's to break God's law. It's to say, God, you're not God, I am. I'm going to do what I want, not what you've commanded me to do. And they get kicked out. They get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And more crucially, they get kicked out of the presence of God and they can't get back in. In some ways, the story of the Bible is all about how on earth do we get back into God's presence. And when it comes to justification, there are two big glimpses of what is to come. The first one is from a really important passage in Genesis 15. So in Genesis 12, God picks a bloke named Abram and he says, I'm going to bless you with land, I'm going to bless you with offspring, and I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing to the whole world. Now that's a big promise to a 75-year-old bloke who doesn't have kids and whose wife is 65 and a little bit past it. Not that if you're over 65, you're past it, but you're probably not going to pop out any babies anytime soon. Years pass and he still doesn't have a child. And Abram comes before God and he says, God, you made these promises, but I'm much older, still don't have any kids. In fact, one of my servants is my heir just because I don't have any children of my own. And in Genesis 15, this is what happens. God says to Abram, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And remembering he doesn't have one yet. He says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here's the key verse for us tonight. And Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So get this. If justification is where God counts someone as righteous, he declares them righteous. In the Old Testament... It was by faith in God's grace that a person was counted righteous. And in the New Testament, it's by faith in God's grace that a person is counted righteous. So we've got this idea in the Old Testament that faith in God is the means by which you receive the declaration righteous. God's grace is the means, sorry, we receive it by faith. The other really important thing is the sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, there's this, there's this problem. We looked at it a little bit last year when we looked at Exodus. God says he's going to dwell with his people, but they're idolatrous and evil. And so there's this question, how can a holy God hang out with an unholy people? How can a holy God be present with an unholy, idolatrous people? And so if you read through Exodus and Leviticus in particular, uh, you find that there are all these rules that God gives to his people. I, I, I read through the Bible in a year. I've got this plan that I stick to, and I'm in Leviticus at the moment, and there's sacrifices everywhere. But the really key one is the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. It's, Jews call it Yom Kippur. 
And so on the day of Yom Kippur, the high priest sacrifices a bull for himself. And then you've got these two goats. Goat number one gets killed and its blood gets sprinkled all over stuff in the tabernacle and actually eventually all over the people. Aren't you glad we're not in the Old Testament anymore and I'm not up here sprinkling blood on you? But the idea of this sacrifice is that you have an innocent animal without blemish who dies as a substitute in the place of the people. It's a sacrifice that turns aside God's wrath. Now, remember, we talked about this last week, I think, or the week before. God's wrath is not the idea that his anger builds and builds and builds and builds and then he just spews forth anger everywhere. You know what that's like? I don't know if you grew up with parents who sometimes did their nana or maybe your siblings did their nana. God's wrath is not like that. It's not like he suddenly loses control and just goes ah everywhere, kill some animals, that'll fix it. That's not what's going on. Rather, God's wrath is his settled opposition to sin. So goat number one gets killed, bloods get sprinkled. Goat number two is then, it gets some of the blood of the first goat put on it and it's taken to the edge of the camp and it's released. Have you ever heard the phrase scapegoat? Someone's a scapegoat? This is where it comes from, the day of Yom Kippur. This goat literally escapes And the idea is that it takes the sin of the people with them. So God's wrath is turned aside with goat number one and goat number two, their sin is taken away. And this whole system of animal sacrifice, there's heaps more sacrifices uh, commanded by God, but it's, it's bloody and it's shocking to us as modern contemporary people. And so you could conclude that God is barbaric or bloody, Or you could conclude that sin is more awful than you thought. That sin leads to death. It's a very graphic, visual teaching method that says sin leads to death. Sin is such a big deal that something needs to die in the place of this sinful people in order for God to be with them. And so... In the Bible, at the heart of this thing called justification, that God declares sin as righteous, is something that theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. But don't get stressed by the big words. Basically what it means is there's a penalty for sin to be paid. And the penalty, the wages of sin, Romans will say, is death. There's a substitute who dies in the place of the guilty, the innocent who dies in the place of the guilty. And atonement, you might have heard a sacrifice of atonement as Lindsay read that passage. Atonement means to make something right. And when theologians, when the Bible talks about the atonement or the atoning sacrifice, it's talking about Jesus' death that makes right the fact that we are guilty. In the Old Testament, the animal bears the penalty in the place of the sinner to atone for their sin. They make the sacrifice and God says, when I see that you've made the sacrifice, I'll forgive your sin. Here's the problem with the system. It never ends. Year after year after year, you make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Blood is being sprinkled all the time. And when you get to the New Testament, particularly in the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews says the Old Testament sacrificial system, it never really dealt with sin because you had to keep doing it. But rather it was a shadow of what Christ would do on the cross. 
And so as we get to Romans chapter 3 and we read about a sacrifice of atonement or your Bible might say propitiation, that's the first goat, the sacrifice that turns aside wrath, we need to remember that Old Testament background because without it we can't understand Jesus' death. So let's turn to Romans 3. Romans 3 is the culmination of an argument that Paul's been building. In chapter 1, Paul says to his Roman Christian brothers and sisters that God's wrath is being revealed, that is his judgment, his judgment, his settled opposition to sin, because people worship created things rather than the creator. That all are guilty, that the Jews are guilty and the Gentiles are guilty. There's no single human who is righteous. So if you look at Romans 3 with me, have a look from halfway through verse 10. It says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. It's quite a damning report card. If you got that from a school teacher, it'd basically say there is nothing redeeming about your child. They are awful and stupid. But here it basically says humans are spiritually bankrupt. They got nothing. And before we get to justification, we actually have to recognize there's a twofold problem going on here. Because you can't find a solution until you admit the problem. Like in Alcoholics Anonymous, you have to admit that you're an alcoholic before you can find healing. You've got to admit the problem. Or like the bloke who just refuses to go to the doctor. He's not getting better until he admits that there's a problem and he needs some help from the doctor. Or if if you're a bit older and you've seen Monty Python uh, and the Holy Grail, there's this knight who just keeps getting limbs chopped off him. And he says, it's just a flesh wound. It's just a flesh wound. I can still fight. He's got no arms and legs. He's just a head. And he's just in complete denial that he's dying and dead. So what's the problem? Here's the first problem, and we just read it. We've all sinned. There's none of us who are righteous. We deserve judgment. We are born that way, and we choose that way. It's actually what it means to be human. No one can claim to be totally innocent. No one can claim to be selfless and morally pure. The the challenge, I think, is that many in our society, many people, maybe even us, we don't see this as a big problem. We think, sure, I'm... I make mistakes, but so does everyone else. That's life. I'm a pretty good person. I try to be good. Why isn't it enough for God that I just try? Why can't he just forget about my mistakes? Seems a reasonable question, right? So the first problem is that we've all sinned. But the second problem makes sense of why that idea of God just can't, why can't he just forget about it? Impossible. The second problem is that God is holy and just. Imagine for a second, if you will, some of the worst injustices that have been out there in human history. Imagine some of the worst injustices of your life. And now imagine that God doesn't care and won't call those injustices to account. That's a problem, right? Do you want to spend eternity with a God who doesn't care about evil? When I was in year eight, our teacher, our science teacher went on maternity leave and the first lesson with Mr Coombs, Jeffrey was sitting next to me and he said something pretty abhorrent. I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was like thoroughly rude, disgusting comment to the girl sitting next to him. And Mr Coombs stared at him and Jeffrey immediately turned to me and went, James. And so I got busted. First lesson and this teacher thinks I'm a pervert. And 
this is 10 seconds in year eight science and I still remember the sting of injustice. I still remember longing for justice. Maybe you've had that experience. But me in year nine science, <laughs> we did this quiz with a teacher who is a, is a Christian, so a public high school, and uh, she ended up like she's married to an Anglican minister. And we had this quiz and the prize was a Mars bar. And I wanted the Mars bar. And so I cheated. And I cheated and I won the Mars bar. And at the end of the lesson, because she was a bit sus, but she probably thought I was a good kid, she, she pulled me up at the end of the lesson to give me the mask bar and she said, James, did you cheat? And I said, no. <laughs> and I took the mask bar and I ate it and it was delicious. <laughs> you see, when we're sinned against, we want justice. When we sin, we want mercy. The great problem of the Bible is that my sin plus a holy God equals disaster. If God is to be just, he must deal with all sin, both sin that's out there but also in me, all the evil in me. He he can't just ignore some sin. It must be dealt with. What we humans naturally do is we just compare ourselves to other people. So you just pick someone who's worse than you in some kind of way and then you start to feel better about yourself. You just say, oh, well, they're worse than me. They speed and I don't, so I'm great. They're more impatient than me. They're ruder than me. So my rudeness isn't such a big deal because at least I'm not as rude as that. You, you know what I mean? This is our natural default mode. But when you compare yourself to a holy God who's infinitely pure and infinitely good and infinitely perfect, I mean, you don't just come up short. You, you don't even have a hope. You don't even get close. We've all ignored God. We've all chosen self. We've all made created things ultimate. And we try and say that it's not really about God, but here's the thing for God. He's our creator. And when we make earthly created things ultimate, we say to God, you're no good. You can't satisfy my soul. You you can't save. We might not even intend to, but we offend him. And a holy God cannot ignore our sin and injustice or he wouldn't be good. We want a good God who deals with sin, just not ours. Now, when a person realises that the default mode of their heart is sin, what do most of us do at some point? We try and fix it. When I was in late primary school, we had this wall in our garage about this wide, and when mum and dad's cars were not in the garage, I thought it was a perfect place to practice my tennis. And so I'd practice tennis against this brick wall. Not a lot of room. And I remember this one day mum and dad were out. I was probably like in year six, and uh, I was working on the forehand, and then I was working on the backhand. And I was starting to get some really good heat in my backhand. It was feeling good. It was feeling good. And then one went astray, and uh, it went wide and high. And, of course, next to that brick wall was a very small window that let some light in the room and the ball went straight through and I thought, I'm dead. And so what did I do? I ran inside and I found this little tin that contained all the money in the world that I had. It had one $5 note in it. It had several gold coins and a few hundred grams of, you know, (laughs) shrapnel. And I sat there counting my coins, crying my little eyes out. 
I've had the experience as a parent a few times where my kids, you know, a lot of the time when they do something wrong, they just pretend like no big deal, what of it. But there's been a few times where they've done something bad and they knew it and they're like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I still remember my parents coming through the door and my I just broke down and cried and said, I'll pay for it, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. But here's the problem. When you're 11, you, you don't have the cash to pay for a window. In verse 20 of Romans 3, it says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What's he saying? There's no amount of rule keeping that can pay for your sin. There's no amount of good that you can do that can undo the bad. You can't earn it back. This is a debt that you cannot pay. You can't follow the Jewish law so good that God will have to show you kindness. Or to put it another way, there's no amount of church attendance or sacrificial giving that can fix sin. See, the law isn't the problem. The law just doesn't save. It's the wrong tool for the job. The law doesn't save from sin. It reveals it. So you can't get right with God through being good or attending church. So before we can hear God's solution, we have to recognise we have a big problem. Our sin plus a holy God equals disaster. We can't fix it. There's an old German monk named Martin Luther. He started what was called the Protestant Reformation about 500 years ago. Before he became a Christian, he was, he was a monk, an Augustinian monk, and he knew that God was holy and he knew that he was sinful. And so you know what he concluded? He just concluded that he hated God. He just hated him because he couldn't, He couldn't come to a point where he didn't understand grace. He didn't understand God's kindness. And he thought, if God is who the Bible says he is, and I am who I know I am, a sinner, I am in big trouble. And so how can a holy God declare sinners like us righteous? Let's have a look from verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So here's the first thing he says. If you want God to declare you innocent, it's not going to happen through obeying the rules. It's only going to happen through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let's keep going because this just reaffirms the problem. For there is no distinction, by that he means between Jew and Gentile, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here the glory of God means God's perfection. We all fall short. We don't even get close. But verse 24, and are justified, that means declared righteous or innocent, we're justified by his grace. Grace is an undeserved gift. It's free. It's God's kindness. He says, here you go. You're not only undeserving, you're actually ill-deserving. Here is my goodness, a gift offered to you, this declaration of righteousness. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Next week we're going to talk more about redemption. It's the idea that God buys people out of slavery. Now, how does he do it? Here's verse 25. Whom God put forward, your Bible might say, an atoning sacrifice. Mine says propitiation, big confusing word. But remember that goat, the first one that dies, that turns aside the wrath of God? God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
That means that when Jesus died on the cross, all of God's anger and wrath, the penalty for my sin and yours was poured out on the Son instead of on me, on us. And it says you have to receive it by faith. The opposite of receiving it by faith is receiving it by works. See, grace cannot by definition be earned. You can't earn a gift. A gift is freely given. If you earn a gift, it's no longer a gift. It's wages. It's payment. And so in this setting, faith, it's simply saying to God, help, I can't save me, only Jesus can. Faith is admitting that you have a big problem that you can't fix. And it's saying to God, I need you. The end of verse 25 puts forward this big problem. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You ever had someone say, where is God when it comes to all the evil and injustice in the world? What is he doing? Paul's saying here, God has not judged past sins like he perhaps should have or could have because he passed over them in order that he could put forward Christ to be the sacrifice for sins. It's why we're not dead right now. It's the mercy of God. But that in the cross, God shows himself to be just. He cares about sin, but also the justifier of sinners. That is, he shows mercy to sinners like us. So let's sum up. How can a sinner be declared righteous by God? It's not by works of the law. It's by God's grace. It's his gift of Christ who dies on the cross, bears the penalty as our substitute in our place, which we receive by faith. That on the cross, God poured out all his wrath and anger upon the Son. Jesus took the penalty for our sin and Jesus willingly took it for us. He's the innocent one who bears the wrath of God for the guilt of the world. The innocent dies the death of the guilty so that the guilty can be treated by God as innocent. Sin is dealt with. God doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't pretend it's not there. It's there on full display. And at the same time, God declares sinners to be righteous. On the cross, justice and mercy kiss. It's all gift. It's received by faith, not by works. It's his life for yours. We're guilty and deserving of condemnation, but for all who trust in Jesus, God declares them innocent. It's amazing. And it calls for a response. If you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, I want to encourage you to think through this question. Do you long for justice? Do you long for God to make everything right? And if you do, what would make you confident to stand before him and be sure that he's not going to give you the justice that you deserve for the wrongs you've committed against him and others? See, here clearly none of us can get right with God by our own works. You can't earn grace. It's a gift. You can't earn righteousness. It's too late. And the call in our lives, all of us, is to admit the problem, our sin and God's holiness, and to see the offer of his grace, to marvel at it, and trust Jesus' death as your substitute. The Bible promises that all who do that, God will declare righteous. The judge of the universe will drop the gavel and say, you are guilty, but my son has paid the penalty in your place. Your penalty is paid in full. I declare you innocent. And, and this, this changes everything. 
You see, this response, turning from sin and trusting in Jesus, it's not just the start, it's how you continue in the Christian life. You keep turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. And so I want, I want to show you three ways this should shape life, three things in your life that should change if you believe that you're justified by God's grace. You're declared righteous because of what Jesus has done, not what you do. Here's the first one. It should humble us. In verse 27, Paul says, Then what becomes of our boasting? Our there is the Jews. What becomes of Jewish boasting? Like we're the special ones. He says it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, the law of faith. That is, we've got nothing to boast in because we don't earn salvation. Christians, we get good at being good. And we forget to repent. The temptation in the Christian life is as you go along getting better at being good that you start to think that your righteousness is your righteousness, not Christ's gifted to you. And if that's you, the call is to repent. I mean, think about it. If there was some other way that we sinners could be declared righteous, don't you think Jesus would have taken that option? We've all sinned and fallen short. None of us have the story that we dusted ourselves off and picked ourselves up by our bootstraps and then made ourselves really awesome so now God loves us. None of us have that story. God stepped in. And the tendency for people who think themselves righteous by their own doing is to get a little bit proud. We look down on others. We judge and condemn. We, we lift ourselves up and we look on others and imagine them, imagine them all evil and us all good. But Paul says, may our only boast be Christ. I mean, what gives you confidence in your standing before God? What makes you think when I die, I'll be okay? Is it how good you are at praying regularly or reading your Bible? Is it your church attendance? Is it your giving to charities? Is it how good you drive or how great you are at study or at parenting Is it your work ethic where you work harder than everyone else? The Bible says none of it saves. And when we think like that, we actually mock the cross. It's evil to think that we add anything to what Jesus has offered for us in his death. And so let the reminder that God declares people righteous as a gift. If you're a Christian, let that humble you to put your confidence in Christ. Let it free you to repent When was the last time you really repented before God? When was the last time you were genuinely broken by your sin that led Christ to die for you and bear the wrath of God in full, so broken that you were grieved? When was the last time you actually repented genuinely to someone else? See, when you get that you fall short and can't save yourself, swallowing your pride it comes more freely because you realise that pride is both insane and deadly. Are there people who you need to apologise to? Humble yourself. Christians, we should be the first ones to admit that we're wrong. Even when we're 5% wrong and they're 95% wrong, we should be the first to admit. We've got to own it. Knowing that you're declared righteous by God's grace should humble you. That's the first thing. The second thing is it should free you from condemnation. Stu talked about it earlier, Romans 8.1, therefore there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I wonder what you do when you've sinned and feel guilty. 
What do you do? There's two dangers. Some of us run from God. We chuck an Adam and Eve and we run and we hide and we cover ourselves with some fig leaves. Some of us pretend that it doesn't matter because God shows us grace. Like sin is no big deal. Oh, it's no big deal. He'll forgive me. And the Bible says may it, be, may it never be to both of those. Both distort justification. The call on all of us is when you sin, remember the cross. Remember that Christ died to bear the penalty for your sin. Sin is serious. It should cause you to grieve and repent, but it should cause you to run to him for more grace. Some of us are prone to punish ourselves. Some of us are prone to condemn ourselves. We say we're worthless and we're useless. We tell ourselves that we're damned. As if Christ is, is only the saviour of the good sinners, not the people who do the really bad things of which I am one. But Christ's death covers all sin, both the things that we don't think is such a big deal and the things that we're most ashamed of. His blood covers it all. Some of us, when things go wrong in our lives, we assume that God is punishing us. Sometimes there is a direct connection between our choices and our lives, yeah? If you smoke for 40 years and then get lung cancer, it would be a strange thing to go, why, God, why? You know, actions have consequences. But if you're a Christian and you're declared righteous by trusting in Christ's death, then Christ was punished for you. And God as a just God isn't punishing twice for the same sin. There's no more condemnation. He bore your penalty in full. Remind yourself of those truths. Some of us need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily as we wrestle with guilt and shame. We need to fix our eyes on the cross so that we know there's therefore no condemnation for us who are trusting in Jesus. Well, not to minimise our sin. If you're guilty because you've done something wrong, that's God's mercy. But it shouldn't cause you to despair, but rather run to him for grace. Let the cross remind you that God has declared all those who trust in Jesus to be righteous. So this should humble us. It should help us to walk in no condemnation. Here's the last thing. If you're declared righteous by faith, then this should bring about grace-empowered obedience. Some of us are really good at being good, and we do good out of duty to be good. Some of us have a tendency to do, go- to do good in the hope that God will accept us as a result of our goodness. See, Christians, they're not just people who repent of doing wrong things. Christians are people who ask God to forgive them for the reasons they do good things. Some of us do good and think God owes us. We're like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. If, if you're always angry at people and bitter that no one's good enough or no one does a good enough job at work or bitter at God for the life you have despite all your hard work, maybe you've forgotten that the heart of the Christian faith is that God declares sin as righteous by his grace. Maybe your obedience is your attempt to manipulate God to give you what you want, in which case he's not your God, he's your slave, your genie. But when you understand the cross 
that God declares righteous by grace, that transforms why you obey. You serve because you are served by the God of the universe. You give because God gave his son. You love sacrificially because God loved you at greatest cost to himself. You grow in your kindness and patience towards others because you realise that God is far more kind and patient with you than you ever have to be with anyone else. You grow in gentleness because you realise that if the God of the universe treated you as you deserved, it wouldn't be gentle. And yet he's gentle. Is that you? Maybe the reason we judge and complain and lack patience is because we are so quick to forget how God declared us righteous. And the call on us is to repent. Obedience becomes the obvious and joyous response to grace. It takes a lifetime of work. We've heard a bit about that tonight. But it starts with the fact that God declares us innocent, that people declared righteous, humble themselves, They repent gladly and they obey with joy. For all of us, our only hope, our only hope of standing before God and being declared righteous is not law-keeping or goodness, it's grace. It's that Christ died as your substitute. He bore your penalty to be received by faith. We've already sung of it, haven't we? We sung Jesus paid it all. Because of that, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed us white as snow. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that Christ willingly went to the cross for us. Thank you that on the cross you poured out your penalty for sin on him instead of us. Thank you that he's the innocent one who died like a guilty sinner so that we guilty sinners might be declared innocent when we put our trust in him. Thank you that he willingly bore our penalty in our place. Lord, may that humble us. May it encourage us to turn from sin again and trust in Jesus all the more. May it help us to deal with guilt and shame. May we run to you when we sin. And may we be a people who obey you joyfully. Lord, for those who aren't yet Christians tonight, I pray that you would be at work in them by your spirit. That as we long for a world where sin is undone and where justice is done, that we would recognise our need for you to deal with us. Thanks that Jesus went to the cross for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.